so glad to be back with you. I'm sorry for the long break this week. It wasn't what um, I had planned. In my yawning cavern of ignorance, I truly believed that I could record podcasts while on vacation with my family. And that just shows what an optimist I truly am. So that didn't work out. Um, but I'm so glad to be back this week. I also wanted to thank those of you who reached out to me um, and messaged me on Instagram at uh, Treasury of Good Things and just had so many words of encouragement for me about this podcast and um, those of you who went on Apple Podcasts and left reviews and um, five-star reviews um, thank you so much for doing that that was so kind of you and such an encouragement to me so I'm glad that we're all just making this podcast as an encouragement to me it's um, given me so much food for thought and I'm just praying that that's what it is for you all too um, so anyway, let, let's uh, pray real quick and then we'll jump into our readings. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you are for us. I thank you, Father, that you, um, I thank you, Father, that you have not left us orphaned here on earth, that when Christ left, he promised us that we were not left as orphans, but that we were given the Holy Spirit. And Father, I just pray that in all our actions um, t today and in this week, that we would choose to obey you, that we would not think that a different path, a better path exists. Father, I know that oftentimes with our mouth, we say that we are followers of Jesus Christ, and yet none of our actions would show that we are followers because we don't want to obey. We always think that there's some other avenue of success out there. And Father, I just pray that you would take away from us the fear of obedience. Father, I pray that this week we would find opportunities to do exactly what you told us to do. Not versions of what you told us to do. Um, not putting off what you told us to do for a later date when it's more convenient to us. But in the moment that we would just lay down our idea of what matters and carry out the superior goal of what you say matters. Father, I pray that you would help us to confront the pride in our hearts that so desperately want to be a God. Father, we so desperately want to be worshipped as gods that we are sometimes willing to do and act and say things that we know are duplicitous and untrue and um, wrong-headed just because we want the approval of others, just because we want some version of success that we believe um, is not afforded us when we walk with you. Father, it is it's very difficult to be a Christian in the environment that we're in, Father. But I know, Lord, that you, you, we have been placed in these generations for a reason and that I am in this generation for a reason and all my listeners are in this generation for a reason. Because you know that our, you've perfectly and superiorly created us to be lights in this time. You know you have equipped each of us with the personality, the talents, the skills to be 
an enormous blessing to those around us if we will actually be the people you created us to be. And Father, I, I just pray that we would fully cling to our identity in you rather than trying on so many different identities. Father, we love you and we just we want to honor you with our time here on earth so that when this is all over, you can say, well done, good and faithful servant. Help us to be the people you created us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so our um, liturgy today is really, it's different than one we've done. It's still from the book, Every Moment Holy. But what I like about this liturgy is a conversation between a younger Christian and an older fellow believer. So there's this um, younger Christian that's sort of struggling with the fear of failure, um, struggling with the uh, with the fears that can come uh, with a new challenge, and wondering why God wouldn't just make it so easy and simple to accomplish the things He's asked of us. And then the older Christian is kind of answering back and um, gently encouraging them to see why it does matter that we deal with fear and anxiety, how our failures are sometimes our greatest successes. It's really pretty back and forth, really beautiful. So um, that's our liturgy today. And let me go ahead and get started with that. Um, All the rest of our readings too today are kind of just focused on what do we do when we feel like we are um, just either defeated or on the brink of being defeated. And how do we come back from that? And how do we rightly look at defeat? Um, And how do we rightly look uh, at a world that feels like we can't get ahead? So let me go ahead and get started with the liturgy. So this is a liturgy for those fearing failure. The Christian says, I come to you, O Christ, in dismay, fearing I might fail in what is now before me. And the fellow believer answers, Oh, Christian, if you would truly serve your maker in whatever capacity or vocation, is it not necessary for your own good and for the good of the kingdom of God that you would sometimes be met with such fear and dismay? And the Christian responds, But how could such a besetting fear ever be for my good or for the good of God's eternal kingdom? And the fellow believer answers, Under the Spirit's tutelage, such fears might become messengers of grace, revealing to you only what was true all along. In yourself, you do not have the strength or the wisdom or the ability to accomplish the task to which you are called. Apart from the Spirit of God breathing life into your incomplete and sin-tainted efforts, apart from the Father blessing and multiplying your inadequate offerings, apart from your Lord meeting you in your stumbling attempts at faithfulness, no good work will come to fruition. No achievement will endure. No lasting benefit will come of your labors. So you must come repeatedly to the end of trust in your own strength, child, that you might avail yourself again and again of his strength. And the Christian answers, Then let my fears of failure drive me, O Lord, to collapse here upon your strong shoulders and here to rest, reminded again that I and all your children are always utterly dependent upon you to bring to completion in and through us the good works which you have prepared beforehand for us to do. It's not my own work that is before me now, but yours. And the fellow believer counsels, Indeed, Christian, take heart in this revelation. 
The outcomes of your labors were never in your hands, but in God's. You have but one task, to be faithful. The success of your endeavors is not yours to judge. He works in ways that you cannot comprehend. And in his economy, there will be no waste. Even what you judge is failure, God will tool to greater purpose. And the Christian answers, If this is true, what greater end could he intend to work for my failings? And the fellow believer answers, Who can discern? But consider now. Might your tender father use even your failures and weaknesses to make you more humble and more sympathetic to the failures and failings of others, thereby shaping your heart into a near likeness of the heart of Christ? If your greatest good is to bear in fuller measure the image of your Lord, then might not his greatest and most holy good to you come cloaked in the guise of defeat and dismay? And if that is your Lord's sacred intention, then who's to say how great a success even your failures might be when read aright at last in the Chronicles of Eternity? So relinquish now all vain attempts to parse the mysteries of God's intent. You cannot think his thoughts. You cannot reckon his deep purposes. It is enough to know that all he does is done in love for you. And the Christian responds, Amen. Use then, O Lord, even my failures and my fears of failing to advance your purposes in my heart and in your kingdom and in this world. My confidence is only in you. Amen. I really, really, really am clinging to that idea in this liturgy that the metrics by which I have estimated my success are completely off and that what I deem a failure, what I deem as a heartbreaking disappointment or a um, embarrassing, an embarrassingly stupid action on my part that I should have foreseen and done differently. I think I'm clinging to the idea that those things are like this liturgy said, perhaps some of my greatest successes eternally because I I've said this before I look back over the course of my life and I think were it not for some of the greatest lows the greatest disappointments the greatest crushing sorrows of my life were it not for those things I would not be worth I would not be a person worth knowing I would be shallow and boring um unempathetic I would lack compassion I would lack any care or concern for others. But it's the things that have made life. It is both the things that have been unto me and the things that I have chosen to do to myself and my own sin. Um, the things that Christ has forgiven me for, the things that I have received grace for. It's all of those things that have made me into a person that I think, okay, Lord, maybe you could use me. But I wonder if without defeat, I wonder if the Lord could do much with us. Of course, he can do anything. But I think sometimes it's the people who have had the greatest failures in life, sometimes who have sinned the most enormously and have seen the Lord's kindness and graciousness and forgiveness. Those are the people that can often extend the most forgiveness and the most grace because they know what it's like to be forgiven or to live through a traumatic experience like losing a parent or something like that and 
seeing God's faithfulness in that um, helps you to be a person who can encourage others um, and also to know how much to say and how much to just you know be quiet and sit with the person who is grieving um, it is it's I really can't think when I look back over my life I cannot think of a time in which I have really gleaned much or become a better person when all the all the things in my life are going well I really don't see how any of the good times in my life have shaped me in the image of, of, of Christ. So I, I 100% believe that we have such a wrong-headed idea about what creates success. We want the likes, we want the influence, we want the approval, we want the money, the status, the success. And those things are all lauded and praised by our culture. And it's really, really, really hard not to believe the hype that all that stuff matters and means something. But we're going for the long game here. We're looking towards eternity here. What is the eternal value of what has just occurred? We have to ask ourselves that question. Otherwise, we'll become too defeated to go on. All right, speaking of defeated, let's read our book about the martyrs, Fox's Book of Martyrs. Now, talk about a situation that cannot be defeated. That is the Christians in the Roman Empire. It is astounding to me that there were still converts after all the stuff that we have read. And yet, here we are on to the 10th persecution under Diocletian, which was, as this text will go on to say, the worst of the worst. Like, everything else was child's play up until this point. So, this is a very long chapter. Uh, and so, because of that, we're going to split it up over the, over the week. Um, but as I'm reading this, I am shocked at the cruelty of Diocletian and also the fact that he's not bored himself with the repetitiveness of his cruelty. I mean, it seems to me as I was reading this, I was like, how did this guy keep wanting to show up for this cruelty? I mean, it seems like at a certain point, you'd be like, even I'm bored of this. Like, I've done this before to about a billion people. Not really. But it's just astounding to me that he could keep on the way he did, which just goes to show you that, I mean, there was something more evil behind, like in the works with Diocletian. You know, I mean, you want to talk about spiritual warfare, this guy was at the head of it. Anyway, the 10th persecution under Diocletian. The previous persecutions were only preliminaries for the persecution under Diocletian. It was the worst of all. His desire to revive the old pagan religion of Rome led to what was to be not only a massive persecution of Christians, but the last major persecution in the Roman Empire. In the beginning of his reign, Diocletian was favorable toward the Christians. Several were, however, martyred before any major persecution broke out. Here are some of them. In Rome, the twins Marcus and Marcellianus had been brought up as Christians by their tutors, even though their parents were heathens. Their faithfulness to Christ laid at rest the arguments of those who wanted to make them pagans, and eventually resulted in the conversion of their entire family. For their faith, their arms were tied over their heads to posts, and their feet nailed to the posts. They remained that way for a day and night, and then they were thrust through with lances. But because of the steadfastness of their faith, Zoe, their jailer's wife, was also converted to Christ. Not long after, she was martyred 
by being hung upon a tree, with a straw fire burning under her. After she perished from the flames, a large stone was tied around her body and it was thrown into a nearby river. Faith, a Christian female in Aquitaine, a region in South France, was laid upon a gridiron and broiled, and then beheaded. In Rome, in A.D. 287, Quintin and Lucian were determined to preach the gospel in parts of Gaul. For a while they preached together in northern France. Then Lucian went to another city where he was martyred. Quintain went to another and was fervent in his evangelism. Not long after going there, however, he was arrested and condemned to die for being a Christian. For his death agonies, ropes were tied to his arms and legs, and he was stretched with pulleys until his joints dislocated, and then he was scourged with a wire whip, had boiling oil and pitch poured on his naked body, and had fire applied to his sides and armpits. After these tortures, he was put back into prison, where he soon died from his wounds. A heavy stone was tied to his body, and it was thrown into the Somme River. On June 22, 287, a Christian named Albin became the first British martyr. The city of St. Albans in the county of Hertfordshire is named after him. Albin was originally a pagan, but a Christian minister named Amphibolus convinced him of the truth of Christ. When Amphibolus was sought by the authorities because of his religion, Albin hid him in the house. When soldiers came there seeking him, Albin said he was Amphibolus in order to give him time to escape. The deception was discovered, and the governor ordered Albin to be scourged and then beheaded. The Venerable Bed, the Anglo-Saxon theologian and historian who wrote the Ecclesiastical History of the English Nation in AD 731, states that Albin's executioner suddenly became a convert to Christianity and begged Albin that he be allowed to die for him or with him. He was given permission for the latter, and they were both beheaded by a soldier who volunteered to act as executioner. It was during Diocletian's reign that Galerius, his adopted son and successor, agitated by his mother, who was a bigot pagan, convinced the emperor to eliminate Christianity from the Roman Empire. The day scheduled to begin the bloody work was February 23, 303. It began in Nicomedia, the capital of Diocletian's Eastern Roman Empire. Early that morning, the chief of police and a large number of officers and assistants made their way to the main Christian church and forced open its doors and ransacked the building and burned all its sacred books. Diocletian and Galerius had accompanied them to witness the beginning of the end of the Christian religion. But not satisfied with the burning of books, they had the building leveled to the ground. Following this, Diocletian issued an edict that all Christian churches and books were to be destroyed, and all Christians were to be arrested as traitors to the empire. When the edict was posted in a public place, a bold Christian immediately tore it down and denounced the name of the emperor for his injustice. For his public display of contempt for the emperor, he was arrested, tortured, and burned to death. Every Christian in Nicomedia was arrested and put into prison. To ensure the certainty and severity of their punishment, Galerius secretly ordered the imperial palace set on fire, and Christians blamed as the arsonists. From this, a general persecution started throughout the empire and lasted ten years, during which thousands of Christians were martyred. It mattered not their age or sex, none were spared. In AD 286, Diocletian had divided the empire into east and west in an attempt to rule the territory more effectively, and the persecution was especially fierce in the east, which was under his rule. In AD 293, he made Aurelius Valerius Constantius, the father of Constantine, Caesar of the west areas of Gaul and Britain. Christian became a hated name among the pagans, and anyone who bore that name received no mercy from them. Once again, they were blamed for every disaster and misfortune that befell the pagans. 
The worst lies and most unreasonable stories could be told about them, and they were believed. The forms of torture that were devised exhausted imagination. Many Christian houses were set on fire, the entire families perishing in the flames. Heavy stones were hung about the necks of many, and they were tied together and driven into the sea. Racks, scourges, fire, swords, daggers, crosses, poison, starvation, they were all used individually and collectively. In the region of Phrygia, a city in which all the citizens were Christians, was burned, and all the inhabitants forced into the flames to perish. Finally, weary with the slaughter, the governors of several provinces appealed to the emperor on the basis that such conduct on the part of Romans was improper. Thus, many Christians were saved from death, but were mutilated in such ways as to make their lives miserable. Many had their ears cut off, their noses slit, one or both eyes put out, bones torn out of their sockets, and their flesh burned in conspicuous places, so they were ever marked as Christians. As with all general persecutions, only a few stories can be told, but they represent the thousands who were tortured unmercifully and died horrible deaths. Sebastian was an officer in the emperor's guard at Rome. During the persecution, when he refused to recant his faith in Christ and worship idols, Diocletian ordered him shot through with arrows, which was done until he was supposedly dead. When some Christians came to take his body and bury it, however, they saw signs of life in him, and immediately took him to a secure place where he recovered from his wounds. His respite from death was nevertheless short, for as soon as he was able he accosted Diocletian in the streets, and rebuked him for his cruel and prejudiced treatment of Christians. Though surprised at seeing Sebastian alive, the emperor immediately ordered him arrested and taken to a place of execution, and beaten to death. To prevent the Christians from finding his body this time, he ordered it thrown into the Roman sewers. But Lucinda, a pious woman, found a way to remove it from the sewers, and had it buried in the catacombs, among the bodies of other martyrs. And that is where we'll stop today, on the persecution of Diocletian. Uh, Wednesday and Friday, we will finish that. Whew! You just gotta... It just really puts your own troubles into perspective, doesn't it? It really, really does. It suddenly makes it seem less offensive that people didn't like something that you posted or, you know, somebody said something to you that was thoughtless or unkind and suddenly you're hearing about people who are being rounded up into churches and burned to death. I mean, it's whole villages of people being burned to death and it just sort of makes you realize that all the petty things that seem like they're such a big deal really aren't and not to diminish the things that we're going through either because that's always sort of annoying we're like well it could be worse well of course it could be worse but it's still I mean we're still all going through things that are hard for us so I don't want to diminish your sufferings but just as I'm reading this I think Lord you've asked so little of me why, why is it so hard for me to obey you when you've asked really honestly so very little of me? It just makes me want to, I guess, just try harder, you know, and quit making so many excuses for myself. If these people, in the face of all of these troubles, were galvanized to obey the Lord despite what it would cost them, yet they chose to obey, what excuse have I got? All right, now our hymn. Oh, I like this one. It's funny because when I was younger, I didn't like this hymn at all, but I really like it now. Um, and our hymn for the day is, Oh, the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus. I think I didn't like this hymn when I was younger because I thought it was hard to sing. The The melody of this song is very much like a rolling ocean. 
And so as a kid, I thought it just sort of had this wandering tune that I couldn't quite catch, but I really like it now. All right, the text of Oh, the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus was written by Samuel Trevor Francis. As a child, Samuel Trevor Francis loved writing poetry so much that he made a book of his own poems. He also loved music, and he became a member of a church choir when he was nine. As a teenager, however, Francis lived his life far from God. Yet walking home one night, he began praying for God to have mercy on him. As he crossed the Thames River, he looked down at the rolling dark water and was tempted to jump in and end his life. But the question came to his mind, Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? To which he responded, I do believe. At that point, he says he turned and he put his whole trust in Christ. He became a successful businessman, but spent most of his remaining 73 years traveling the world to preach and share the hymns he'd written. He wrote the words to this hymn in 1890 when he was 56 years old. Surely God's love had triumphed over his earlier despair. And the tune was written by Thomas John Williams. Thomas John Williams was a Welsh composer and organist and attended a church called Ebenezer, which means Stone of Help, after which he named his tune Ebenezer. But it also sometimes is called Tony Bottle, which means to tune in a bottle. Because an English folk singer once said that it must have washed up on the shores of Wales in a bottle. The triplets within the melodic rhythm and the rising and falling melody create a sense of rolling ocean waters. This is the text to this hymn. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is a current of thy love, leading onward, leading homeward to thy glorious rest above. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, spread his praise from shore to shore, how he loveth, ever loveth, changeth never, nevermore, how he watches o'er his loved ones, died to call them all his own, how for them he intercedeth, watcheth o'er them from the throne. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, love of every love the best, tis an ocean vast of blessing, tis a haven sweet of rest. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, tis a heaven of heavens to me, and as it lifts me up to glory, for it lifts me up to thee. And this is the tune. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. pretty i don't know why i didn't used to like that anyway um moving on to our psalm for the day psalm 55 
You know, I've mentioned this psalm before. Because this psalm, I hadn't read it. I was reading it. I was, I was flicking through the psalms one day. And I read this one. And it was at a time when I was sort of in a bit of despair. Um, about one thing or another. And the line in this psalm that really stuck out to me is, um, Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. And I've, I've mentioned before in various podcasts, sometimes this world is so hard because it feels like the roar of the enemy is louder than the sound of God's voice. And I think it always will be as long as we are sort of living a duplicitous life where we sometimes obey God and then sometimes we don't. And I think that when we are sort of paying homage to this idea that there's success and happiness, um, that there's another stream of water we can drink from other than God, we're always going to find it very hard to distinguish God's voice. Because the thing is, we're not going to find a really deep, meaningful uh relationship with God if we're just living life and thinking that somehow we're going to stumble upon great and meaningful uh, relationship with the Lord. We, we wouldn't expect that with any human relationship. If you never poured into any human relationship, you wouldn't be like, why is it not working out with this other, you know, this, this friend of mine? Why do we seem like we're not connecting? Well, do you spend any time with that person? You know, so in no other relationship can we be so hands-off and yet expect so much. But it seems like with our relationship with God, we want to have him when we want him, but then sort of ignore him when it's not convenient. And then we want to know why we can't hear his voice. And so that was really convicting to me as I read this um, this particular psalm when I read it. But So we've got that going along in the psalm, this, this cry to the Lord of like, Father, I want to hear you. I, I want to hear you above everything else. But then there's another thing going on in this um, psalm. It was written by David. And somebody has betrayed him. A friend, somebody who he had always thought was somebody he could rely on, has betrayed him. And it's he's grieving the loss of this friendship. He's grieving the, the failure of this friendship. And um, he's in despair. But as I read, as we read this psalm, I kind of want us to think one of two things. Either one... If you are grieving the loss of a friendship, if somebody has betrayed you or treated you unkindly, like be encouraged by this sort of this this emotional cry to the Lord because I think we've all been in that place where there was somebody who we thought we could trust, somebody who we thought was going to take care of us or be there for us and they've just completely abandoned us. We've all felt like that before. Somebody has rejected us, somebody has rejected our friendship and it really stings. But then also as I was reading it, I was thinking, have I been the sort of person that's rejected somebody? Have I been a, the sort of friend who has been, who has said one thing to a person's face and then been two-faced, you know? So I, w I was reading this psalm and just thinking, Lord, I know the cry of feeling betrayed, but Lord, also, have I been a person who has betrayed? Have I been the sort of friend who couldn't be relied on? I think I've probably honestly played both roles in various times of my life. So there's a lot going on in this hymn, but I... Or not this hymn, but there's a lot going on in this psalm, and um, I just I, I I just love the honesty of the psalms. I love the honesty of David. I love the fact that he is just hurting, but he ha but he's not turning on God. Um, I think sometimes we like to sit in a place where we know that we can tell God whatever is on our hearts, 
and we should and he wants that kind of relationship with us but then sometimes I think we don't see it all the way through we kind of get really angry at God and kind of sit in our anger and feel justified in sitting there and telling him what we really think of him but then sometimes I feel like we don't go for full circle and and then preach to ourselves. but what are the promises of God who is he really yes this is how I feel right now and I can say what I really feel like to God and God's big enough to hear it but then beyond that who is God who is this great being that I've been asked into a relationship with has he really abandoned me does he really not love me has he really left me to my despair no and I will confess that many times I've gone to the Lord and just said all the angry things I wanted to say and then didn't meditate on the truth of who he is. So that's what I love about David is that he he goes to God with all of his strife and all of his sadness and all of his disappointment, but he doesn't sit there. I think there's only one psalm where he just ends it there. But other than that, he always reminds himself of God's promises. So it's on to our psalm. Psalm 55. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I'm restless in my complaint, and I moan because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. For they drop trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. And I say, Oh, that I had the wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. Destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. For it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive. For evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. But I call to God. And the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage, for many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them, he who is enthroned from of old, because they do not change and do not fear God. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will not permit the righteous to be moved. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of, bloody and, men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days. But I will trust in you. so good it's so good so glad that the Lord can be trusted aren't you glad that he's the same today and yesterday and tomorrow that there's no shadow in him that there is no wicked way in him 
think there's so there's so very there's so little that we can trust um even even the people on their best days i mean they're only humans we put so much um, stock in our human relationships and are often so disappointed when they don't come through for us but what a relief to know that i can in my wildest imaginations i could not come up with anybody more faithful than god i cannot overemphasize him in any way i cannot over i cannot exaggerate god's goodness isn't that amazing that we cannot over-exaggerate God? I mean, that's, that is an amazing statement. And he calls us friend. I mean, what greater compliment could we ever receive than that God calls us friend? He calls you friend and he calls me friend. I mean, you meditate on that for a minute and you, you, you could just weep at the generous nature of God. And it's not something he just says. It's not just a platitude, a pat on the head to make us feel better. He does not tolerate us. He adores us. And if you need to be reminded, if you need to feel loved, meditate on this. The Psalms say that God delights in you. Delights in you. Isn't that isn't that a gorgeous word? Isn't that, I mean, that's better than, than love or like or, I mean, he delights. I'm going to pray for us real quick. And um, I thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Um, I, I just, at the end of every one of these podcasts, I just feel like my soul has been revived just getting to read all this. So thank you for joining in um, this with me. And um, let, let me just pray us out. Oh, Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your graciousness and your kindness. I thank you for the uplifting of our souls as we read all these good things. Father, I thank you so much for your kindness, for your mercy, for your friendship. Lord, I confess that too often I make too little of that friendship. And I grieve the Holy Spirit because I choose things so often that are far less than you. Father, I confess that I have a definition of success that is not the same as your definition of success. And Lord, I, I despise that in me. Father, I pray that you would break down the pride in my heart that wants so desperately to be my own God. That wants so desperately to be able to achieve success without you. Lord, if I'm honest, I think the thing that I find the most difficult about Christianity is my constant need to come to you and say, Lord, again, I need you. I need you again today. My pride hates that. I just want to do it myself. I'm like a toddler who wants to put on their own shoes but doesn't know how to tie the laces. And I'm over here having a fit saying I want to do it myself and I have no idea how to do it. Lord, break that thing in me that believes that I'm something other than you. Father, without you, I can never hope to be of any success or of any benefit to anybody around me, Lord. Help me, Father. Help me to rely on you and to delight in relying on you. 
Father, I thank you that you can change us and make us right. Thank you, Father, that our brokenness is no obstacle in your ability to use us. Father, I pray that we would be the light and life that you created us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all have a wonderful rest of the day, and I will see you on Wednesday. Bye. Thank you.